From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. From the basketball court to the soccer field, youth sports can be the ultimate classroom. Kids can learn the importance of teamwork, sportsmanship, and perseverance. But youth sports are not without risk. Worries about concussions, overuse injuries, and loss of perspective by fans and coaches Uh-oh. can make parents question what's right for their child. On today's program, we'll discuss the benefits and risks of youth sports with a Mayo Clinic expert. Also on the program, we'll hear about the latest advances in treating liver disease. And the painful but short-lived ice cream headache. It's delicious, but why does it happen? All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Well, from the basketball court to the soccer field, the tennis court to the swimming pool, youth sports can be a great way for kids to be social and be active. Kids can also learn the importance of teamwork, sportsmanship, perseverance, and even, hopefully, respect for authority and the rules. But youth sports also come with some risks. Things like concussions, knee injuries, and shoulder problems can all be a part of taking part in athletics. Here to talk about youth sports, pros and cons, is orthopedic surgeon and co-director of the Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Center, Dr. Mike Stewart, Welcome back to the program once again, Dr. Stewart. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yep. Good to have you here. And I remember the first time we did this back in <laughs> 1991, wasn't it? That's right. Yep. June, June 1991. The very, the first, very first guest. guest. And wow. here he is again. Number, this is appearance number 29, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Great to have you. So organized youth sports, I assume you're, you're in favor? Very much so. I think sports have a lot to offer. Clearly there's risks and benefits, but Certainly a lot, lot more benefits. I just want to know the amount of time, how many, how long ago was that you said? What has changed in your practice over the 20-some years that you've been practicing and helping with sports? Well, neither one of us has aged. I know that. We both <laughs> I look didn't the say same. anything yeah. about that. <laughs> well, a lot has changed in my practice. Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine has really, really evolved over those years. Proud to say that uh, we're now uh, internationally known for taking care of athletes and for education and research in the area of of sports medicine and orthopedic surgery. You know, it was interesting when I was a young athlete, when you guys were young athletes, nobody got concussions. Now, Now kids get concussions. Or maybe we did get concussions and we just didn't know it. I think that's probably the correct answer. Back in the days when we were playing, there was really very poor recognition for concussions. The entity was not easily diagnosed. We didn't understand the symptoms, the signs, the tests that are required to make the diagnosis. So I do believe that they've always been present. We're just now better at identifying concussions. And better at treating them? We're getting better. We've learned a lot, even in recent years, about how to manage concussions. There needs to be a short time for physical and cognitive rest, but now we're exercising our athletes quicker There's some exciting new research looking at dietary supplements and medications, which actually could reduce the the severity and longevity of symptoms. Dietary supplements? Yes, there's some uh, research from our military colleagues with blast trauma victims, soldiers who have been treated with a variety of substances. One's called N-acetylcysteine. There's also some other dietary uh, substances which uh, have been shown to have some promise. 
You remember back in the day uh, when somebody got their bell rung, we used to call it, they would break one of those ammonia ammonia salt things and have you smell that and get back in the game. Bad idea for sure. So <laughs> now we have a, a motto, which is when in doubt, sit them out. So certainly any young athlete, athlete in general, even suspected to have a concussion, should be immediately removed from play, should be evaluated by a qualified health care provider, properly diagnosed and treated, and then cleared for a return to play by that medical professional. What do you think of, of Bob Costas's comments about a football being a dying sport and that uh, less, fewer and fewer parents were going to let their kids, kids play football because of the long-term consequences of multiple head injuries? Well, it's certainly a concern. We know that contact and collision sports do carry risk of injury, including concussion. Football is notorious for that because of the nature of the game with frequent hits to the head and repetitive blows, actually, which may not cause a traumatic brain injury, but there's concerns about the additive or cumulative effects. We know in our youth that the most uh, dangerous sport for concussion happens to be football, in large part because there's so many players who are involved. But football is responsible for about 60% of concussions in high school athletes. In males, it is the uh, number one sport that causes concussion, whereas in females, it's actually soccer. Hmm. What about uh, the age to start organized sports? Because maybe not in all parts of the country, but definitely where we're at in Minnesota, those hockey kids start at three years old, three or four years old. Is that too young or... When should you start organized sports? Well, I think you should start as, as soon as possible because, as we will discuss, the benefits are overwhelming. And learning some of the motor skills, coordination, body control, not to mention having fun, I think has no, no age minimum. The problem really lies in large part with parents and coaches. Mm -hmm. And that's due to one term called professionalization where you take a little kid who's having fun and try to put it in the perspective that they're going to get a college scholarship or end up playing for the Minnesota Wild, when actually you should just let them have fun. Secondly is specialization, where you participate in only one sport year-round. And I think there's some real detriment to that because you lose the opportunity to learn other skills that you can gain from other sports. Actually, seven out of ten U.S. Olympic athletes played multiple sports in high school. So it shows you that you can reach a world-class level without super specialization at a young age, not to mention the fact that year-round participation in a single sport actually increases the risk of injury because of overuse and a lot of other different factors. Sooner or later, if you're a very elite athlete, you do have to specialize, and you get to a certain point where if you want to excel, it has to become your main focus but certainly not as a youth player. So you talked about uh, there are a lot of benefits to youth-organized sports. Talk about some of those. Well, I think first and foremost is fun. Uh, I think um, all of us remember playing sports and the enjoyment of getting on the court, the field, the pool, the rink. Um, you make tremendous friendships. Some of my best friends to this day are my former teammates who I played uh, youth and high school sports with. Clearly, there's many physical benefits. Um, you can develop your energy system, have more endurance. It's healthy for muscles and bones. Uh, it's been shown that sports participation will decrease the risk of obesity, which is the number one problem we have maybe in our youth right now with 
uh, up to 30% of, of our young people being classified as obese. And we know the consequences of that in the future, things like diabetes and sleep apnea and all kind of other medical conditions that are associated with lack of exercise and obese body habitus. So uh, youth obesity is a huge problem in adults, but also uh, in, in youth. But the activity will help overcome that. Yes, it's been shown, actually, that those youngsters that participate in sports, in youth sports, are more likely to exercise as adults and continue recreational sports and fitness activities. So it really is a, a lesson for life. Uh, in addition, of course, there's tremendous uh, social and psychological benefits. You learn things like teamwork and leadership and how to win and how to lose, which may not be apparent to a lot of people. Uh, it's been also shown that participation in sports decreases stress, anxiety, cigarette smoking, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. So there's so many potential advantages uh, from all those different aspects of life. I know that um, you have put some limits or suggested some limits with regard to um, contact in, in in hockey and football until a certain age, right? Tackling, Correct. et cetera. Tell us about those guidelines. Well, I think that if we look at injury prevention in sports, we have to understand injury epidemiology, which means we have to learn who gets injured, how they get injured, how often it occurs, how severe it is. Once we know about the epidemiology, we can then target different strategies for prevention. And I like to always say that there's risk in life. There's risk of being a youth because you're, you're active, you're fearless. And actually, participation in team sports is probably less risky than bicycles, trampolines, skateboards, playground equipment, and horses. So I think we have to be realistic about risk-benefit analysis. Therefore, we're not trying to get rid of team sports. We're trying to make them safer. And there's a lot of different strategies that we can talk about, and they're very sports-specific. What about strength training or weightlifting? When is it that teens or kids, when should you start doing that? You can start strength training at a very young age as long as it's done properly. It has to be with good technique, good form. And I think it's very important that you don't learn strength training in a gym by, by older brothers or sisters. You have to have somebody show you the proper technique. And we need to differentiate between strength training, powerlifting, bodybuilding, and those types of activities which are also done with weights or resistance. So when properly done with good form, strength training does have benefits and is safe even for our younger athletes. All right, we're talking with Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine expert, Dr. Michael Stewart. He is also co-director of the Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Center. It's time for a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about weightlifting and strength training in the kids, and we'll dispel some common concussion myths. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're back talking with the co-director of the Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Center, Dr. Michael Stewart. How about some general comments about uh, the prevention of injuries in, in kids who are participating in youth sports? Well, a perfect example is what we've done with USA Hockey. I'm the chief medical officer for USA Hockey. I'm involved in our safety and protective equipment committee that I co-chair. And we've come up with some strategies to reduce risk. For example, 
we know that a blow to the head can cause a concussion. Therefore, it's now illegal in youth hockey, even for an unintentional blow to the head. Even an accidental one is a penalty. We've eliminated body checking in games at the peewee level. So now you cannot body check in games until age 13. And we've seen a very dramatic reduction in the risk of injury and the risk of concussion, about a 65% reduction in our peewee players. We know in football, for example, that injuries occur commonly in practice, including concussions. Therefore, we need to look very closely at football practices and actually reduce the mechanisms that can cause concussion and other injuries when our athletes are training. Uh, I just want to know when it comes to youth and sports, we had kind of touched on concussions, um, knee injuries and shoulder problems. Are, are there risks for young athletes more than adult athletes? Well, there's certain unique risks for young athletes because they're still growing. So, for example, in the throwing sports, there can be risks to growth plates and other ligaments, which we need to make sure that we can avoid. And that's why in baseball and softball, there's now pitch counts. We have to be very careful that we're not causing these overuse injuries by having our athletes pitch too many games, participate in too many leagues, throw the wrong types of pitches with with poor mechanics. And therefore, another great preventative strategy is to monitor the number of pitches. So that's a repetitive use type of an injury. You're relying on a coach then when you're a parent. Uh, maybe you're the parent coach, but how do you monitor that? How many is too many? I mean, if, if I'm not a sports trainer and my you know, 10-year-old is pitching baseball, what should you do? Well, parents are ultimately responsible, but uh, there are rules in place now. And I think that if we look at sports in general, enforcing the existing rules is a good place to start. A lot of injuries occur when the rules aren't enforced. And there's also been some rule changes which have made a big difference too. And I think that parents are ultimately responsible for monitoring their own children to make sure that even though one coach is making sure they're not pitching too many games on his team, they're also playing on a different team and they're playing in a triple A and they're playing for their, their high school team, et cetera. So it really does require personal responsibility. All right, let's go back to the topic of concussion, because I know there's a lot of uh, misinformation out there. Let's start with this one. You need to lose consciousness or memory to be diagnosed with a concussion. Myth or matter of fact? Well, that's a clear myth. In fact, probably less than 10% of concussed athletes actually lose consciousness. They may also not have a loss of memory, whether it's a retrograde or anagrade amnesia. So I think it all starts with education. We have to inform players, coaches, parents, officials, and healthcare providers about the symptoms and signs of concussion and the fact that oftentimes the symptoms will evolve later. So you may not be able to accurately diagnose a concussion immediately after the injury. So it all comes down to having a high index of suspicion, removing that athlete from play, and then following up accordingly. And how do you decide when to let him go back? There's only one scenario in all of sport where you can let an athlete with a suspected concussion go back to play in the same game. That's if you're absolutely certain they don't have a concussion, which is very difficult to do. But that's why young, young athletes have baseline um, exams done, correct? Correct. There are some newer ways that we can 
diagnose a concussion. One is called the King-Divic test, which was developed in association with Mayo Clinic. It's a rapid number naming test that can be administered by anyone, a parent, a coach, a trainer, any kind of healthcare care provider. And if that player takes longer to read this set of numbers than they did compared to their baseline, they have a concussion mm. and they're removed from play. Is it different when a teen athlete or a child athlete gets a concussion versus when an adult gets a concussion? Is it is it differently? Is it treated in a different way? There are definitely some differences. Uh, first of all, all our youth, high school, collegiate athletes are student athletes. So we have to consider that they need to get back to learning in addition to sport as opposed to a professional athlete. The developing brain may react differently. Uh, there's also social implications of being away from school and from peers. So I think it is a, a very different scenario when we have a youth athlete concussed compared to an adult. All right, how about this one? A player that has sustained a concussion is up to three times more likely to sustain a second concussion in the same season. True. And I think it's also important to realize that there is a period of vulnerability. So in other words, if you return too soon, you're at increased risk for another concussion, which will likely have more profound symptoms and a longer recovery. So that's why we have to be very careful about returning an athlete to play who has symptoms or who has not recovered from their initial concussion. What do you see in the future of sports and youth in sports? Well, I always look at it from a multifactorial perspective. First and foremost, we have to emphasize sportsmanship and mutual respect. We have to remember that sports are fun, and we have to have that respect for our opponent. Secondly, we'll continue to make sports safer through a variety of different preventative strategies Third, we can't prevent every single concussion or injury, but we should be better at diagnosing and treating them. All right, we've been talking about the benefits and risks of youth sports, specialization when kids are young, and also concussions. With Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine expert, co-director of the Mayo Clinic Sports Medicine Center, Dr. Mike Stewart. Dr. Stewart, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about the latest in liver disease treatment. And later on the show, the dreaded brain freeze headache. Want to hear more and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out more than 200 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video, now available on YouTube. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. The National Institutes of Health estimates that 25 to 35% of women have some degree of urinary incontinence. Mayo Clinic Dr. Deborah Leitner says not all incontinence issues are the same, and there is help available. Some women in their 50s start to notice it with activity, and that's called stress incontinence. It's predictable. Women often know that it might happen during certain activities. The other kind of urinary incontinence is called urge incontinence. And if you have it, your bladder can empty without warning. Kegel exercises are a good treatment to start with, but talk to your health care provider about options that are right for you.
And in other news, some people traveling internationally may end up with traveler's diarrhea. And during spring break, that number is especially high for Americans as they travel to countries with warmer climates. But there are some steps you can take to ensure that your trip isn't interrupted by unpleasant bathroom breaks. Dr. Cindy Kermit says contaminated water is the number one cause. She says boiling your water first can help. Other things to avoid are ice cubes. Fresh fruit is fine as long as you peel it yourself. And as far as other food, make sure it's well done. Avoid eating anything raw or semi-cooked. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, every year, 40,000 people die of liver disease in the U.S. And the only proven therapy for in-state liver disease is still a liver transplant. Unfortunately, there aren't enough organs to go around for those who need them. In fact, there are more than 150,000 people who are on the waiting list for a donor liver. Now, hopefully, treatment for liver disease is about to change Mm -hmm. for the better. Research at Mayo Clinic is focusing on new regenerative liver therapies to help repair diseased livers and improve the treatment options for liver disease patients. Here to discuss is Dr. Scott Nyberg, a transplant surgeon at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Nyberg is the director of the liver program at the Mayo Clinic Center for Regenerative Medicine and head of Mayo Clinic's artificial liver program. Welcome to the program, Dr. Nyberg. It's nice to meet you. It's great to be here, Tracy and Tom. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. You have been studying the liver and liver disease for a long time, long enough to get all those those titles, right? I started back in the early 80s, probably. Um, I was both a chemical engineer and then a biomedical engineer. Had a mentor who said with that engineering background, why don't you build a liver dialysis machine? I asked him, how should I do that? And that was in 1989. And he said, you figure it out. You're the engineer. So I've been working on this for almost 30 years. Well, I want to learn a lot more about the artificial liver program. But before we go there, we should probably just set the table. What is liver disease? What causes liver disease? I mean, there are many causes. Um, They can range from Tylenol overdose, a common drug like Tylenol, alcohol. Um, People are familiar with that, along with genetic causes, In the United States, I would say uh, obesity is becoming a number one cause. Overweight contributes to a disease called NASH. Uh, It had been hepatitis C. Now there are uh, pretty effective treatments for hepatitis C, so we're seeing a a decrease. But the number one cause would be NASH, followed by alcohol, and then these others. Explain NASH to us. And, And you mentioned that obesity is becoming a more common cause of liver disease. How does obesity cause liver disease, and I suspect that NASH is the answer? Right. It's not fully understood as far as the mechanisms, um, but there has been this association with as Americans and people around the world become heavier, there's more liver disease. Uh, If a pathologist looks at a biopsy of a NASH liver, it looks similar to an alcoholic liver, so it's probably a nutritional problem where too many calories cause an inflammatory response and do this over a long period of time, there becomes scarring and eventually cirrhosis and the manifestations of end-stage liver disease. And cirrhosis is pretty much just scarring of the liver. Advanced scarring to a point where the liver isn't able to regenerate. Uh, Fortunately, a healthy liver, if we cut it in half, will grow back to a full size within a couple weeks. Um, That's a normal response, but 
due to the scarring of fibrosis and cirrhosis, that regenerative response is impaired, and the only real treatment for those end-stage livers is a liver transplant currently. Does NASH stand for something? Non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. So it looks pathologically like alcoholic uh, liver injury, but it's non-alcoholic, related presumably to diet and weight. How long can people live with liver disease before they need a transplant? Well, we have a scoring system now that was developed here at Mayo called the MELD score. Initially, it was called the Mayo End-Stage Liver Disease Score to predict how long people would survive, um, what's their likelihood of being alive in two months. Um, It's been adopted nationally for organ allocation because it's very good at predicting the name was changed. They took Mayo out of the name, and now it's just the model for end-stage liver disease. <laughs> so that's probably the best predictor. And in transplant, we use that score to determine who has highest priority. So it ranges from 0 to 40, where if you have a score of 40, it's unlikely you're going to survive more than a few weeks. What can make if a patient is not eligible for transplant? I mean, there's being on the list means that you're eligible, but why would patients not be eligible for transplant? I mean, there's a variety of reasons. Um, If you're an alcoholic that continues to drink and haven't uh, recovered, you wouldn't be eligible. That wouldn't be a wise use of an organ. If you have a disease that may involve other organs that's not corrected by a liver transplant, or if you have a cancer that's spread outside of the liver that we wouldn't be able to help you and then transplant an immunosuppressive patient, you could actually shorten their life. And So there are a number... You can be too old, though we don't have a cutoff as far as age goes. So you're still doing a lot of liver transplant, right? And and uh, yes. a fair number of those are from deceased donors, but also you're using live donors. Yeah, here at Mayo, we have a large living donor pro- program, one of the largest in the United States, which means we do over 20 per year of the 130 liver transplants that we do. So that's a living donor, a family member, our friend who donates half of their liver. Um, yeah, and two weeks later, the liver has regenerated, did you say, to its normal size? Probably two weeks in the donor. We do CAT scans to, to measure the volume, and they're within 90% of the original volume within two weeks. So it's very rapid. In my lab, we have a number of animal models studying regeneration, and we see this very quickly also. All right, what's new And regenerative medicine and artificial liver? Well, here at Mayo, the... The biggest problem in transplant is the shortage of organs. So the things we do in regenerative medicine are to address that shortage of organs. One option is a liver dialysis machine to allow the the liver to regenerate and hopefully avoid a liver transplant. So that would be, uh, that would save the liver, could be used for someone else and avoid big surgery and all the immunosuppression, lifelong immunosuppression for a patient. That'd be a patient maybe with a Tylenol overdose. We also have a special pig that we've developed, a genetically engineered pig. And the goal there is to grow transplantable human livers in this pig. Sounds science fiction, but um, in my lab, we recently had a pig named Eddie, who, (laughs) beautiful little piggy, if you look at my Instagram site, you'll see a picture of Eddie, (laughs) who essentially was created by a stem cell transplant into a day four embryo. And this is sort of the future I see of organ production. 
And then we're also so this hopefully someday Eddie's liver can be transplanted into a human. Eddie will Eddie and pigs like Eddie will be incubators to grow human livers. The concept would be to take a cell, reprogram it into a a cell from a patient liver disease, reprogram it into a stem cell, fuse it with an embryo, and then grow a liver from that human stem cell. Whoa. Yeah. I got to sit. Oh, I am sitting down. Good. Yeah. That's good. Uh, how are you using the patient's own liver cell? Is that is that what you're saying when you take a cell to help? You could, in this case, you could even take a blood sample, like a white blood cell from just a blood wow. sample. Um, the Nobel Prize for Medicine about four years ago was a way to reprogram cells, adult cells, to become stem cells. And the theory would be that you could use those stem cells to grow livers. Well, hopefully you and Eddie will get the Nobel Prize next year. I think we're still a little ways off. Eddie and pigs like Eddie. Um, The other option that we're working with a local company is to take livers, decellularize them, and then repopulate them with cells from a patient. So, again, you could avoid the need for immunosuppression. Mm -hmm. So these would be a tissue-engineered uh, liver that would be identical to the patient. So they wouldn't need an anti-rejection drug after the transplant? If it works using your own cells, you shouldn't need to. We had a paper recently published in one of the science journals, Science Translational Medicine, showing that this concept would work in pigs, and it's a matter of scaling it up to humans. Uh, it's all really exciting. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. An update on the treatment of liver disease with Dr. Scott Nyberg, transplant surgeon and director of the liver program at the Mayo Clinic Center for Regenerative Medicine and head of Mayo Clinic's artificial liver program. Thanks, Dr. Nyberg. Yeah, thank you, Tom Tracy. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, have you ever had an ice cream headache? We'll find out why it happens from a Mayo Clinic experts. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. If you've ever slurped down a slushy or eaten your ice cream a little too quickly, you might have experienced it. You know, spinopalatine ganglioneuralgia, huh? better known as... Uh, a brain <laughs> freeze. brain freeze or an ice cream headache. <laughs> yeah, a brain freeze happens when cold food touches a group of nerves in the back of the palate. These are the same nerves that are related to cluster and migraine headaches. Joining us on the phone to discuss headaches, ice cream, and others from the Mayo Clinic in Arizona is neurologist Dr. Amal Starling. Dr. Starling, welcome to the program. Good to have you. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about headache, which affects so many people. So it's a very important topic that we should all be talking about. So who hasn't had an ice cream headache? You know, based on studies, I think the majority of people have had an ice cream headache at some point or another. It it is very painful, but it only lasts for seconds. So I think after a moment of laughter, it's a good idea to just let them know that trigger avoidance is something we can do by slowing down uh, the consumption of cold products such as ice cream and slushies. How do you do that? Yeah, no, that's impossible. (laughs) So what, what is really happening Yeah, so, you know, this is very similar to when it's really cold outside and your hands are cold and you run them underneath some warm or hot water. It'll be an immediate onset of pain uh, before you feel that warmth. And so that's related to actually vascular reactivity. So what's happening um, is that there is a reduction of the blood flow or vasoconstriction 
that occurs and then a vasodilation or enlargement of the blood vessels that occurs. And there are what we call nociceptors or the pain-sensitive structures that are in the vessel walls. And so when the blood vessels change sizes, it activates those pain receptors. And we think that the same thing is happening uh, when someone has a rapid ingestion of anything cold. It also can occur with a rapid inhalation of cold air, um, such as someone who's ice skating or if someone is surfing um, in cold weather. There have been case reports of that as well. And so we suspect that what occurs is that there is a rapid constriction and then expansion of the blood vessels that are in the palate, um, so the hard top part of the mouth as well as the back of the throat, and then that results in a headache. Now, some people may ask, well, why doesn't it just cause pain in the mouth? Why does it actually cause a headache? And this is an example of what we call referred pain. So a lot, of time, a lot of times people hear that if your left arm is hurting, think that you might be having a heart attack, and that's referred pain as well because the nerves innervate the left arm and the heart. Um, they go to the similar part of the brain. The brain can't tell the difference about what is causing the pain. And the same thing happens in the ice cream headache is that that goes to the same part of the brain where headache disorders are generated and head pain is generated. And so the manifestation is headache rather than palate pain. You know, that's the best explanation I've ever heard, uh, Dr. <laughs> Starling. But uh, didn't it take a long time to figure this out? It seems to me like for years people would uh, uh, talk about ice cream uh, headache, and uh, the answer was we don't know what causes it. Yeah, you know, I feel like that is probably the pattern that has existed in a lot of headache disorders. So not just ice cream headache, but the same thing with migraine um, and cluster headache is that people didn't really understand it and so they thought I don't know what it is don't worry about it it's just a headache you'll get over it and it's true in cold stimulus headache or an ice cream headache it just lasts for a few seconds it's very benign it doesn't cause significant disability except for the inability to consume ice cream quickly um, but for the other headache disorders this has definitely been an impairment um, in our ability to move the science forward because of a lack of funding and a lack of interest I just, ha I just have to ask a question. I'm thrilled that you're joining us because I want to know if putting your tongue on the top of your mouth when you have a brain freeze or an ice cream headache, if that really helps to make the ice cream headache go away, or is it just giving you something nearly impossible to do until it just naturally goes away? You know, it, it, we don't have a study that gives us definitive evidence as to the answer to your question. However, if this is related to a rapid change in temperature, which results in a rapid change in blood vessel size, if you can use something like your tongue or your thumb to uh, touch and potentially warm up your palate, perhaps that does actually reduce the rapid changes in vessel size. Well, interesting. The pain from an ice cream headache, is it similar to a migraine or is it similar to any other kind of headache that we know about? Yeah, it's similar in the sense that it is activating a similar part of the brain. So the trigeminal nucleus caudalis is a part in the brain stem. Oh, that stem. part. Hold yeah. on. <laughs> what is that again? There's, there's a part that's in the brain stem that's called the trigeminal nucleus caudalis. And the trigeminal nucleus caudalis is an essential part of the brain for many headache disorders, um, including ice cream headache, as well as more common 
migraine, as well as cluster headache and the other headache disorders that people can experience. Wow, so everybody's got one of those. Everybody's got one of those. Unfortunately, some people, their trigeminal nucleus caudalis is more prone to having migraine attacks based on genetics. And I wish that a migraine only lasts as long as brain freeze. I know, I know. Unfortunately, so many people um, in the U.S. and globally suffer from migraine attacks and migraine is a neurologic disease, which can be very debilitating. Now what so, are, yeah, go ahead, Dr. Shives. As long as uh, we brought up the uh, subject of migraines, I understand that there are some new medications coming out that are supposed to be very good for migraine sufferers. Yes, definitely. So it is a, it's going to revolutionize the way that we practice headache medicine, I suspect. Um, so as we've learned more about the science of migraine, we've identified this neuropeptide, um, which is called calcitonin gene-related peptide, and we call that CGRP. And CGRP is elevated during a migraine attack. It is also relieved or reduced when a migraine attack is relieved with as-needed medications such as sumatriptan. In addition, in people who have more severe migraine disease, they have chronic migraine, which is defined as having greater than 15 headache days per month. And in those individuals, they persistently have an elevated amount of CGRP or that neuropeptide in their system. And so that led to drug discovery to determine how can we modulate the CGRP system to benefit people with migraine, the neurologic disease. And so it has led to the development of these monoclonal antibodies, which are not actually affecting the immune system. The monoclonal antibody is just a delivery system um, that then actually consumes or blocks and inactivates either the molecule or the receptor, depending on which drug we're talking about. Well, I'm glad you understand how it works. You know, people are more compliant when they understand how a medication works. And the best way I can describe it is the old-school arcade game of (laughs) Pac-Man. And you think of the medication as Pac-Man, and the dots are CGRP and CGRP receptors. And the medication is going to eat up all those dots, and it's going to reduce the frequency and severity of migraine attacks. When are these drugs going to be available? I'm sure there are a lot of migraine sufferers who, uh, who would like to know. I wish that I had the answer to that. What I can tell you is that the uh, studies that have been completed, there's four different companies that have been uh, completing uh, their phase three clinical trials. And so I'm hoping, fingers crossed, that it should be available soon. The good news is every single one of the studies have been positive, And so it's very consistently um, effective in people who have both episodic migraine as well as chronic migraine. Well, hopefully those medications will be available soon. Dr. Amal Starling, thanks so much for being with us. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for having me on. And Dr. slow Amal- down on your ice cream, Dr. Yes. Shai. Yeah. <laughs> Can't do it. Can't do it. <laughs> Dr. Starling is a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Thanks again. You're very welcome. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us.
Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.